Good morning. My name is Abra Bhattacharjee, and I'm one of the elders here at City Reach, and it's a privilege and an honor to take you into God's Word today on Father's Day here in Australia. Um, when, when Pastor Graham asked me to preach many weeks ago, I tried to find the most cheerful passage I could, uh, and I think you'll find that Genesis chapter 2 really leaves uh, uh, you, you reeling. But when you spend time in the Bible, you really will often encounter the idea of fatherhood, particularly the fatherhood of God. For some, that's a great thing. It opens doors to really understanding who God is and, and who we are. For others, it's uh, something we can trip over and struggle with. You see, fatherhood as it relates to God is one thing. As it relates to humans, well, that's a bit of a mixed thing. You see, some of us have been hurt by our fathers. Some of our fathers truly failed us, some profoundly. Some of our fathers never figured out much in life, and so they were a problem to themselves and unavoidably a problem to their children. Others, like my friend Richard, never knew their fathers when they were a child, and when they had their own children, they had a choice to make about what kind of father they would be. He is an awesome dad to Mia, fully present and closely attuned. But like every area of human existence, Fatherhood is something that God wants to redeem in our lives. Now, just in the spirit of full disclosure, I have a great dad. He's not a Christian, and I struggle with the truth that because he's not a Christian, he and I will be spend eternity in different places, but he is a great dad, and I still live in hope. Now, my parents had two kids, and I don't really know if they intended to have any more, but after me, there weren't any, so you can make up your own mind. I must have answered that question very, very clearly. Uh, but hopefully we have a photograph of them. And so there's my parents uh, up there on the left, Aruna and Nupa Bhattacharjee. And those are my in-laws, George and Rose Dawson. And they've played a parenting role in my life as well. And then you've got the three musketeers in the middle. And uh, I'm also a father. My wife, Sandy, and I have three wonderful children who are growing up way, way too fast. My oldest son, Arman, is currently serving his national service obligations in Singapore and is expected to graduate from Specialist Command School as a sergeant on November 16th. My second son, Farhan, is a year 11 student at Cedar and serves in the worship team. And my youngest child is Thara, and she's in year 7 at Cedar College. Farhan and Thara get to celebrate, help me celebrate Father's Day today, and are probably very, very worried about the quality of my dad jokes at this point in time. And I love them all very much, and all three of them give me great joy. But today, on Father's Day in particular, I miss both my dad, my oldest son, Arman, who are separated from me by distance. But I also miss Andrew Henderson. There's a photograph of him over there on the left, who, along with his lovely wife, Daphne, volunteered to stand in as grandparents to our children as they were growing up, and their own biological grandparents are very far away. And I think that there are a fair few in the congregation today that are other either unable to be with their dads, or if they are dads, unable to be with their children. And I just want you to know that I know how you're feeling. Today, I also want to honor those that have served their families well as fathers. Not just because that's a good thing to do, but also because good fathers provide that glimpse, that insight, that point the way to our Heavenly Father. And so here today on Father's Day in Australia, I want to point you to our Heavenly Father. But first, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, today we ask you to bless our earthly fathers.
for the many times they reflected the love, the strength, generosity, wisdom, mercy that you exemplify in your relationship with us, your children. We honor our fathers for putting our needs above their own convenience and comfort, for teaching us to show courage and determination in the face of adversity, for challenging us to move beyond self-limiting boundaries, for, for modeling the qualities that would turn us into responsible, principled, caring adults. Not all of our fathers lived up to these ideals. Give them the grace to acknowledge and learn from their mistakes. Give us the grace to extend to them the same forgiveness that you offer us all. Help us to resist the urge to stay stuck in past bitterness, instead moving forward with your humility and peace of heart. Give new and future fathers the guidance they need to raise happy and holy children, grounded in a love for God and other people. And remind these fathers that treating their wives with dignity, compassion, and respect is one of the greatest gifts they can ever give their children. In Jesus' name, amen. So most Father's Day sermons seek to instruct and to encourage, and today I, I want to do that, but I want to do a little bit more. I think that our Sunday worship services should either teach us something new about God or through the power of the Holy Spirit teach us something new about ourselves. Um, and I want to do that by considering this very challenging passage of Scripture where Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. Graham read that passage beautifully for us, and it's found in Genesis chapter 22. Now, there's two fathers in this passage, right? The first is Abraham, and the second is God. They had a strong and beautiful relationship, Abraham and God. But I really need you to really focus on the fact that Abraham did not have a Bible. You see, this is the book of Genesis, right in the beginning, and Abraham's understanding of God was not through reading the revelation of God, but was through personal, direct encounters with God. The first encounter was the call to leave everything and to go to a land I will show you. Then there was the promise of a child with his wife Sarah, even though they were both too old to procreate. Then there was the fulfillment of the promise at the birth of Isaac. There was a changing of his name to Abraham. And the book of Hebrews lists Abraham as an example of a great man of faith. However great he may have been, the Bible also shares quite vividly how Abraham failed often and failed regularly. Out of fear, Abraham twice lied about his wife Sarah and his relationship and introduced her as a sister. The result was that other men tried to take Sarah as their wives. In fact, after waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled after many years, Sarah suggested to Abraham that he have a child through Sarah's servant Hagar, and Ishmael was born. But despite these mistakes, God still protected his promise to Abraham. God intervened and saved Sarah from getting married to other men. God also protected Isaac. He had Abraham send Hagar and her son Ishmael away, but also blessed Ishmael in a different way. Finally, when Sarah was over 90 years old and Abraham even older, God provided them with a son, Isaac. Unlike Abraham, you and I, we have a, we have a, a greater 
access to a knowledge of God, a written record that we believe to be a reliable and true description of God, a rich history of God's interaction with his people, and our own experiences of God as well. But as we read this story, I really need you to, to set that aside and try and experience it instead as Abraham might have, without all of that great context that we have today. So, in, verse, uh, in chapter 22, verse 1, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham. Now, we know the end of the story because it was read to us, and it's easy to quickly get past this part, but, but just pause a second. After these things, what things? Well, these are the things that I told you about. Remember, all that Abraham knew about God was what he experienced through several personal direct encounters with God, and, and these were the calls to leave everything, to um, the, the promise of an impossible child, uh, that his descendants would be a great nation and would be forever blessed by God. So after these things is a great place to start the sermon this morning, but then we come to that verse, take your son and offer him as a burnt offering. Now some of us know some theology and and sometimes theology is very helpful until it comes to something like this in the story of Genesis. This is a horror story. This is the ultimate test. It tears our hearts into pieces and tempts us potentially to hate God because God drills down into the very center of our lives and threatens someone we love more than anything in the world. Now, in our comfortable heated hall this beautiful sunny spring morning, it's very reasonable to consider that, but ask three very, very difficult questions. The first one is, what kind of father would put a knife to his son's throat, even if God asked him to do it? The second question is, what kind of God would ask this of a man? Then the third question is, how could anyone ever love a God who would put his children through a test like this. Now the wonderful, amazing thing about God and the Bible, his revelation, is that God doesn't shy away from tough questions or from difficult questions. Um, he gives us the scripture to deal with them, so let's tackle all three of them today. Let's start with the first one. What kind of man, what kind of man would do something like this? Well, God wants us to know, and he's provided several pointers in the passage if you're just willing to look for them. So the first one, a man of action. Scripture says, so Abraham rose early. There's no sign of hesitation on Abraham's part. He rose early in the morning to do this. But it must have been a sleepless night. He was a man of obedience. Abraham's obedience showed that he trusted God even when uh, he did not understand. Now, sometimes I imagine some of you are an awful lot like me that says, I'm not going to obey or believe until I understand it all, until I get the big picture. But that essentially, when you strip it away, is putting myself on equal standing with God. Abraham's obedience is also interesting in that he didn't check it out with his friends or put it on WhatsApp or Facebook to see what other people thought about this wonderful thing and then you know, get that polarizing debate. Instead, he knew what to do, and he refused to do any stalling tactics. So a man of action, a man of obedience, but also a man of relationship. God trained Abraham over many decades through these deep personal encounters with him, 
uh, and, and, and really came to a position of great trust. Just in the previous chapter, God had asked Abraham to give up Ishmael, his other son, in a less severe way. God used that and everything else to train up Abraham and build great faith with him. But there is a fourth aspect about Abraham that we really need to understand. I'll be talking about that quite a bit in the rest of the sermon. And that's Abraham's a man was Abraham was a man who was willing to trust God. Abraham's trusted God even when he didn't feel like it. Abraham had learned the difference between trusting the promise and trusting the promiser. We can sometimes put God's promises before God himself and feel it's our responsibility to bring that promise to pass even if we have to disobey God to do it. Don't do that. Trust the promiser no matter what and the promise will take care of itself. So a man of action, a man of obedience, a man in a relationship with God, a man willing to trust God, but the most important one is found in verse 12, a man who feared God. That's the heart of the matter. Abraham fears God. That doesn't mean he was afraid of God. That's not what fearing God involves. It involves faith. Abraham had walked with God for decades and had learned to trust God completely. You see, God made promises and he kept them. God had said, I will bless you incredibly. And he had. He said, I will give you a land and a son. And God had done exactly that against impossible odds. Abraham had seen God's love and faithfulness demonstrated so many times that he trusted God completely, obeyed him without question, and loved his God more than anything else, even his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loved more than anything else on earth. That's, that's what fear of the Lord involves. Not, not, not just fear, but love. You see, Abraham loved God perfectly with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength because God had proved himself worthy of such love. So, what kind of man would do something like this? An obedient man of action who had a relationship with God and feared him. But then that kind of begets the next bigger, perhaps more uncomfortable question. What kind of God asks a man who loves and trusts him this much to do something like this? Again, we've got to look to Scripture. And the passage provides all these pointers. The first one, right there in verse 1, a God who knows in Abraham intimately and calls him by name. In the Bible, names are very, very important. And that's how God calls Abraham in this passage. A God who knows what he's asking. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but as I was preparing for this message, I did search a number of Hebrew words. And in this verse, this is actually phrased as a request and not a command. In other words, God says, please. That doesn't quite appear in our English translations, but it's there in the Hebrew. Please take your son. This is more of an entreaty than a demand, more of a request of a loving father than the demand of a hard-hearted tyrant. You see, 
I believe that God knows what he's asking here. He calls Isaac your son, your only son, whom you love. God knows that Abraham's heart will be torn in two by what he's about to ask. So he's a God who knows Abraham intimately and calls him by name. He's a God who knows what he's asking, but this is a, this is a difficult one. He's a God who surprises us. He definitely surprised Abraham. You see, God asked, take your son, your only son, and go into the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. This is totally out of character for God. It doesn't fit the picture that's been emerging throughout the story of Abraham, a picture of God who wants to bless Abraham, who makes wonderful promises, who has big plans for this man, plans that depend on this very son. Elsewhere in the Bible, God specifically forbids human sacrifice. This doesn't seem to be the God that Abraham has walked with all these years. This is a God of surprises. In fact, when we read about this in the early passages, Abraham doesn't even reflect, uh, he doesn't even call him Yahweh. He's just God. Perhaps a reflection of the fact that in the midst of a test like this, God seems strange and remote and mysterious. But has God changed? No, no, no. We get the beginning of an answer in the very first verse where God tested Abraham. Now, there is a sense in which this is kind of comforting, right? It tells us that even in the toughest experiences of life, God is doing something. These are not accidental events. We're not alone in a cold and cruel universe that sometimes crushes us in its mindless machinery. We're not collateral damage. The God we have known is a loving God in other situations, and it's testing us in these. There's some comfort in that until we're given a test like this. Then, in agony, And in confusion, we ask, why? Why do you have to test me at all? And why in this way? Well, the Bible tells us that God's tests basically have two purposes. To do something to us and to do something about us. A little bit like what I said about Sunday morning services, right? In 1 Peter 1, verse 7, explains that God tests us to do something to our faith to make it strong and pure, just like refining gold. Sometimes I imagine God is a little bit like that drill sergeant in the Marines who puts his recruits through hell on earth so that they are prepared for combat because that's a matter of life and death. The testing hurts like crazy, but it's designed to help them survive and give them victory in the end. God has given tests like that to Abraham before, And now, with each of these tests, he's getting stronger and stronger in his faith. But the other purpose of testing in the Bible is to discover something about us. Here, God's like a teacher at the end of the term. After all, the tests that were designed to do something to the students that comes as, after all of those tests, comes this final exam designed to discover if they've learned their lessons, if they've achieved excellence. That's what this test was about, as revealed by God's words in verse 12. Now I know that you fear God. So, what kind of God puts his children through the ultimate test? A God who wanted to know if Abraham had really learned 
to trust him completely, to obey without question, and to love him more than anything or anyone. But, but now, hang on a second, wait a minute. Doesn't God already know this? Why did he have to put Abraham through this hell to discover that? That's, that's, a, that's a great mystery. Now, some people solve this mystery by asserting that God doesn't know everything. They assert that once God gave humanity free will, God couldn't know how we would choose in every situation, and God is often surprised by the choices we make. Now, that line of thinking may solve the mystery, but leaves us with a God who bears no resemblance to the omniscient God in whom we Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years. Perhaps a better answer lies in that familiar distinction between knowing in your head and knowing from experience. There's a difference between knowing in theory that someone trusts you and knowing they trust you because they have demonstrated that trust. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, in his sermon, The Divine and Supernatural Light, has a great illustration to make this point using honey. He said, your mind can know honey is sweet. People can tell you it's sweet. You've read books about how sweet it is. But if you actually haven't tasted it, you know with your head, but not with your heart. When you actually taste it, you experience it for yourself, you know it in a full way, and you can know it in your heart. I've got another example for you. This. I've got another example for you. This. This is Nick. Nick Walenda. He's a tightrope kind of guy. In this picture, he's riding a cycle on a tightrope across Niagara Falls, that wonderful um, geographic place between the US and Canada. It's very, very high up. There's rushing water below. And after he'd done this several times, he went back and forth, back and forth. And a crowd had gathered, and they were cheering him on, very, very impressively shouted to the crowd, do you believe I can do it? Yes. Do you believe I can do it again? Yes. Do you really trust that I can do it? Yes. Who's ready to get behind me? The crowd disappears. In theory, they trusted. But when their lives were on the line, they didn't. And the only way to prove your trust is to pass the test of putting your life on the line. So, what kind of God would ask this? A God who knows what he's doing and wants to test whether Abraham fears him. Abraham, Abraham chooses to obey. I wonder if we get a glimpse into what is going on in Abraham's mind when he tells his servants, we will worship and then we will come right back. Was it a lie just to give the servants no idea what Abraham was planning to do? Or did Abraham really believe that somehow they were both going to return? To answer that question, we first need to go back and then we need to go forward. First, let's go back in Genesis. And look at the relationship between Abraham and God. Abraham knew that God would provide himself with a lamb because after many years of maturing faith, Abraham grew to fully trust what God says that he would do. He had seen time and time again that God did what he said that he would do. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, after God had promised Abraham to give him innumerable descendants, 
Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Of course, you know, there is a little bit of a little wobble there. Initially, Abraham tried to help God to keep his promise by suggesting that Eliezer be counted as heir or by taking Hagar as, as his wife. But God's plan wasn't for either of these scenarios to provide the fulfillment of his promise. Instead, God further specified that Sarah would have a son and his name would be Isaac. Isaac, Isaac would be the covenant son through whom God would keep his promises. Now, let's go forward to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, where Abraham is celebrated as a man of faith. The author of Hebrews tells us what Abraham was thinking, how he could be willing to kill his son, and how, we could, how he could know that God will provide himself a lamb. When God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, Abraham considered that God is able to raise people from the dead, and that's what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. You see, God had promised Abraham that Isaac would be the covenant son, and that from Isaac, God would raise up a mighty nation in fulfillment of the promises God had made to, to Abraham. God had already miraculously kept his promises. That Isaac was even born was a miracle. And Abraham had learned that God was faithful. So, at first, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we see that Abraham simply exercised his faith, and God counted that as righteousness, as he does with us when we believe in him. But part of growing in our relationship with God is increasing in confidence that he is able and willing to accomplish what he has said. You see, because Abraham had seen God's faithfulness, when this uncharacteristic and, and shocking, surprising request for human sacrifice was made, Abraham trusted God that he knew what he was doing. Abraham knew that even despite the strange and, and frankly, awful request, God would provide and God would keep his word. So far... We focus on the two fathers in the story, God the father and Abraham the father. But, but what about the son, Isaac? Isaac was an insightful man, a, a trusting man, a submissive man, a man in the prime of his life, most likely in his early 30s, talking to his father, whom we know is over 100 years old. Hang on a second. What did I just say? How old was Isaac? Now, in the passage that Pastor Graham read to us, it talks about Abraham telling his young men that he was going to take this boy, Isaac, and go up into the mountain. But if you look at the original Hebrew, see, I did a bit of research. Thank you, Pastor Graham. It's the same word for young men and boy. And so while the Bible doesn't specifically tell us exactly how old Isaac was, it gives us some pretty amazing clues. Some limits are suggested by the chronology of Sarah's life. Sarah gave birth to Isaac when she was 90 years old and sent Ishmael away sometime before the incident at Moriah after Isaac was weaned. Generally, weaning took place somewhere between the ages of two and five. Sarah died sometime after the incident at Moriah at the age of 127. That means that Isaac was older than four or five and younger than 36 to 37 when he's offered as a sacrifice. The phrase is a long time in Genesis 21, 34, and sometime later in Genesis 22, 1, suggests that a substantial amount of time 
had elapsed between Isaac's birth and the trip to Moriah. What we do know in Genesis 22 is that Isaac is old enough to care for himself and to help care for his over 100-year-old father on such a trip, a three-day trip into the mountains and into the wilderness. My guess is that Isaac was in his early 30s when this happened, and Abraham was about 130. So, 30, 130, who do you think was the stronger one? Who do you think was the more powerful of the two? Well, it was clearly Isaac. He was not some scared little boy. He was a submissive, loving son in the prime of his life, supporting an older, frail man. I don't know what Abraham was thinking or feeling. I can't imagine the anguish he was experiencing. And yet Abraham still chose to obey. His answer revealed his complete and utter faith in God. God will provide. Those are powerful words of a man of faith. Abraham's actions show obedience, and his words reveal a faith behind the actions of obedience. There's something there, I believe, for you and me. That an action of obedience rests on a foundation of faith, which is built on a daily basis. Without the foundation of faith, built on a daily basis through nurturing relationship with God, we are far less likely to perceive the pivotal moments and far less likely to act out of obedience. I think it's instructive to us that all these, shall we call, in-between moments are seasons where we need to be continuing to build that foundation of faith and trust, walking day by day, being in the Word, praying regularly, meeting with other believers, listening to the stories of God answering prayer. These are the situations that build that foundation so that when choices need to be made, the very normal and very natural choice is the choice of obedience. Now here is the last bit of the passage that Pastor Graham read to us. It's a happy ending. We're still left with a big mystery of what kind of God would ask this of Abraham? Well, the best person to answer this question is Abraham himself, and he does. Abraham says, Yahweh would. Not just God, like at the beginning of the passage, but Yahweh, the God I've experienced as a faithful and loving covenant partner for all these years. Yahweh will provide. The God who asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son is the God who provided the sacrificial ram himself. The God who commands his beloved friend to go up on the mountain for the ultimate test is the God who always provides up on that mountain. The God referred to earlier in the text now by verse 14 is Abraham's Yahweh. Of course, God provides much, much more than just Laran. Think of it this way. What does God give when Abraham passes this final exam? Is it an A+, a scholarship, a raise, a new car? Listen to the last recorded words of God to Abraham in verses 15 to 18. We've heard them before. They are the promises of a covenant blessing, but God 
adds to them in this instance. Concerns confirms them for all time, not just Isaac, but countless children out of Isaac, not just inheritance of the land, but the conquest of all of its cities and all of the blessing of the entire world, not only through Abraham, but through all the, of the children that spring from Isaac, especially the one known as Jesus. What kind of God tests his children? the God who intends to bless his children beyond their wildest dreams. Remember how Abraham's walk with God began? He was a pagan with no children, no land, no future, no hope. Now here he is, God's dearest friend, the recipient of incredible promises that assure him and his child an unlimited future. It's taken God a long time to get Abraham to this point, but he just wouldn't give up on him. Yahweh will do anything to bless his beloved child because that's the kind of God that he is. You and I should know that much better than Abraham because we have seen the length to which God will go to bring his blessing to the children of Abraham. We have seen the Lamb of God who takes away the world's sin hanging not from a thorny thicket but from an old rugged cross. It was on the mountain of Calvary, not on the mountain of Moriah, that God provided. That, that is the kind of God he is. He will stop at nothing, even the sacrifice of his beloved only son. You see, in Genesis 22, God stopped Abraham. But he didn't stop himself because the deepest desire of God's heart is to bless his children. He is above all else for us. And as Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 say, if God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's the kind of God who asks us to pass the ultimate test, the God who wants to give us all things. Why? Why does that involve such testing? I believe it's because there's a mysterious connection between faith and blessing. The story of Abraham teaches us that God chooses us freely and makes promises to us even before we believe. But then... After we believe, he gives us faith so that we can receive the blessing. As Abraham shows us, the secret of receiving God's provision is trusting God's provision. If Abraham had not gone on ahead and passed the test, he would not have seen the lamb or received that incredible blessing from God. He didn't just watch the cyclist go back and forth on Niagara Falls. He climbed onto his back. Now, this isn't because God sits with folded arms and tight fists, growling, until you trust me, I won't bless. It is rather that we can't receive the blessing until we trust. If left to ourselves, we are closed, bent over into ourselves, we curl into a self-centered ball, protecting ourselves, defending ourselves, helping ourselves, governing ourselves, trusting just ourselves. 
20 years ago, in 2002, my wife Sandy and I were based in India. We'd been married for a couple of years, and I had a job that required extensive travel. And I would be away from home for four to five weeks at a time. I had just completed a meeting with a wonderful gentleman called Glenn Conrad in Baltimore, and he had dropped me off at the Baltimore-Washington International Airport to catch my next flight, and I had a couple of hours to kill. Now, back in those days, the cheapest way of connecting back to India from the US was using little calling cards. You'd scrape off the number at the back, and you could go to a public phone, and you could use that card to call home. So I called Sandy, because it was evening over in the States on the East Coast, and it was morning back in India. And Sandy picked up the phone. It would be a landline phone, for those of you that know what it is. <laughs> and, and we had a wonderful conversation. And that, that morning for her, and that evening for, for me, she confirmed that she was pregnant and we were expecting a child. I was, I was kind of ecstatic and filled with joy and as I hung up the phone, I looked around and in this airport, there were probably about 9,000 people walking past me, not a single person that I knew and, and I didn't know who else, I just remember looking around me and I picked up the phone and I called Glenn Conrad again and he said, just wait over there, I'm coming right back and he did and we met outside for a cup of coffee because I still had some some time, and Glenn, Glenn looked at me and said, Arbro, you know, what's going on here? This is meant to be great news. Why are you looking so downcast? And I looked at Glenn and I said, Glenn, I mean, I, I know I'm supposed to be really happy about this. I should be ecstatic. This should be one of the best news in my life, but I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I'm ready to be a father. And Glenn, he paused and he looked at me and he said, Arbro, and I looked at him and he looked me straight in the eye and said, Arbro, 18 and out of jail. Can you do that? I said, yes, I think I can do that. He says, then you're ready to be a father. Now, I realize that's an incredibly low bar, right? About 20 years later, it's, uh, it's, it's probably not the only bar that you should have to be a father. But that's my boy over there. He's the one whose news I'd heard about. His name is Armand. That's him in his taxi heading to specialist command school in his uniform. And I, and I realize that he has to go to a place and he has to do what they tell him to do and he can't leave when he wants and it feels like 19 and still in jail. But it isn't that. It's something else. But the reason I share that with you is because until I could get past my fear of being not ready to be a dad, I couldn't enjoy the joy that that news should have brought him. And he's brought me incredible joy through the years and, and I just need you to know that until you can trust you can't enjoy. To receive God's blessings, we have to open up. We have to make ourselves vulnerable by obeying God, trusting that God intends us only good. God will not force us to open up and trust Him. He will apply the same warm pressure of His love. Usually that takes the form of pleasant experiences, but sometimes, sometimes it takes the form of painful tests. He wants to move us to trust, to obey, and love him more than anything else so that we can receive the blessings that flow from his fatherly hand. Now I know that I probably haven't answered every question that we have from Genesis 22. I still shudder at the thought of sacrificing any of my children. But if you take nothing else away from today's message, I beg you to consider this, which I know to be true. You and I will never be able to love God in the midst of the horror of life in this world 
unless you believe that he is Yahweh, the loving God who provides and who in his love tests our faith so that we can receive what he provides. You will never be able to believe that. But you will never be able to believe that until you look up and see the lamb caught in the thicket of hell's horror for your salvation. If I believe that God is good, if I believe that he will keep his promises, this test is neither cruel nor irrational. What is more, this story concerns us, what's more in the story, what concerns us more than Isaac's death is about the death of us all. You see, I'm telling you today, and, and, and you will remember, and you will find out that I'm right, that each of us is required, is going to be required to make Abraham's sacrifice. We all must face that we will have to let go for our most beloved person, our most beloved task, our most beloved accomplishment, our most beloved joy. Everything dear to us, everything given to us by God is subject to death, its own or our own. But the essence of today's story, the essence of Genesis 22 is this, is God good? And will God keep his promises? Abraham is our father in faith because he embodies the final act of faith that all of us, all of us must make. We all face the sacrifice. We all stand before the terrible relinquishment of everything we hold, we hold dear. Both Isaac and Jesus are long-awaited beloved sons who are born in miraculous circumstances. Both sons carry the wood that is to be the instrument of their deaths on their backs. In both stories, the father leads the son up a mountain and the son follows obediently towards his own death. And in both scenarios, God provides the sacrificial substitute which Abraham says will be a ram, a male lamb. And the New Testament authors identify as Jesus, the Lamb of God. This is our God who does the very same. This is my beloved son. God's only begotten, one of our own kind, will go through our passages, even the passage of death. Jesus said to his disciples, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. In a very short amount of time, Jesus did just that. He gave his life for his friends. The same Jesus that gave his life 2,000 years ago for his friends was also giving his life for you because he wants you to receive the love, the love of the Father. He wants you to know what a father's love looks like, what the heart of the Father is, do you know that you are loved? Do you care that God loves you and wants the best for you? I hope that you do. And if you've not done it yet, I pray that you will choose to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as the master of your life, that you will accept his gift, which is free of salvation. You see, he gave his life on that cross so that you could be forgiven for your sins that you would be free to live a life that knows joy, the joy of God's shepherding of your life, 
the joy of deep friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the joy of being a vessel through which God brings blessings to others, to show his kindness to others, expresses mercy and goodness to others, perhaps helping to transform the future. How will you respond to the love of God? How will you respond to God's love, which we find in Jesus?